Just two good old boys. Two good old boys. Never meeting no harm. Be sorry, never saw the hand, no hair since the day they was born. Straighten the curves. Straighten the curves. Flatten the heels. The coffee might get them, but the Lord never will. We're casting away. We all have dreams and aspirations. We all long for a better way of life. Why don't we chase down those dreams? If your mojo ain't working, it can be hard. That's where we step in. Welcome to the show that's all about you and your mojo. From the boardroom to the bedroom. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, the show designed to help you get your mojo working in and out of work. Thanks for checking in and our little shindig this week. Good to have you here, appreciate you downloading us. Before we start the show, a big thank you to the boys at Crimson Royale. Now they're the guys who actually recorded the theme song for the I show. Smoke and mirrors, mate. Don't give it away. Well, they deserve it's one of the problems with creativity. People steal ideas and don't give credit. And I am mm. all for crediting a very talented bunch of young guys called Crimson Royale. They recorded it. In fact, that's a really interesting story. It's a bunch of young country guys. Now they're about to do their their, their first album in a couple of uh, months' time. But they were found by Triple J on their, which is a radio network across Australia, on their Unearthed program. And they recognised young music talent, saw these guys. I met the boys, floated the idea for the song for us as a theme song for us. Their music director, Aaron Hollier, went, yeah, we'd be to that. So uh, the boys are in the studio putting down their next album and when they do so, I think we'll get a hold of their first couple of tracks and play them on the show. But um, that on the album? Thank you to the boys. Are we on the album? Negative. But I have to <laughs> tell our audience this is not Smoke and Mirrors. I did actually play bass on the track. Yeah, and if you notes. don't believe me, bring Aaron Holly at the music director. That was part of the deal. He said, the boys will do it. But you got to play bass on it. So what, you now know two chords on the bass, is that right? The Mojo Radio Show. So if you're new to the show, folks, welcome. This is a program about finding interesting people who have their mojo working in, you know, some aspect of their life, whether it be sport or social enterprise, science, technology, psychology, business, whatever they are up to, if we think that they can help us get our mojo working, we're all in. And as always, behind the panel, uh, driving the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show, Robbo, you've already said hello, but uh, welcome. Thank you, mate. How are you? Good, thank you. AP in the booth, uh, the dulcet tones of Andrew Peters. Uh, How are you, mate? I think Stella's an understatement, quite frankly. Anyway... On with the show. You should, you, should, you should know better than to ask that question, honestly. You just leave yourself wide open. We don't take ourselves too seriously. I wish I knew how to quit you. The Mojo Radio Show. 
So let's jump into the show. Our guest this week is Meg Jay, a lovely, fascinating lady who's a clinical psychologist and author. Meg's book, the it's called Super Normal, The Untold Story of Adversity and Resilience. It sort of takes you on a, a journey behind resilience and how resilience works. And for those that are dealing with stuff, how it feels. Meg explores the inner inner world, the secret world of those people who are resilient and writes about the fact that actually what they do and how they face up with resilience and grit is probably more complicated and courageous than we make out. It's a very interesting take on resilience and grit. It's, a, it's an interesting take on how people bear up to hard times. And I think you'll find in this chat, it may change your own perception of what resilience is all about. So Meg, we're delighted to have you here. Welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Now let's put people in the picture. When people ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Well, I usually say I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, And right after that, people usually say, oh, does that mean you're analyzing me right now? (laughs) I usually say, actually, actually I write, I mostly write books for a living and then they seem to exhale a little bit. So that's usually how the conversation goes. Well, let's talk about one of your books. I want to focus on supernormal today. What's what's the meaning of the word supernormal? Who is a supernormal? Well, the meaning of the word supernormal, it, it just means above the normal or average. And that's the title of my most recent book. And it's really about people who have been resilient, who have um, grown up and done well after childhood adversity. You know, not to say that they've reached some sort of extraordinary levels of success, but just the fact that you know, growing up and doing pretty well after having it tough when you're younger, that is extraordinary. For a lot of people, the ordinary is extraordinary. And so that's what Supernormal is all about, is not not just how people do it, because I don't think there's a three-step plan, but really also how does it feel to be one of those people who, you know, um, kind of falls up, as they say, but it's never as easy as that. And you've, you've said it, it's a larger percentage than we think, isn't it? I mean, the people who have faced one or even more serious adversity, it's a, it's a bigger percentage than we normally give credit to, isn't it? Yes. And that's one reason I wanted to write the book and that I wrote the book the way I did. So in it, I talk about the 10 most common adversities that people grow up with. So um, whether that's having a mentally ill parent or, you know, death of a sibling or substance abuse in the home or witnessing domestic violence, sexual abuse. You know, if you look at each of these individually, they just affect a minority of the population. So you've got 15% here, 30% there. But if you look at them together under the umbrella of childhood adversity, we're talking about 75% or more of adults. By the time they reach adulthood, they will have experienced one or more of these. And so in the book, most books just talk about one of these. And so then you have these kind of siloed experiences and people feel like this minority, like they're different, not as good as everyone else. And I wrote the book the way I wrote it, which is was really to wrap its arms around all of these childhood adversities and say, actually, you you're, 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 more, you're not as alone as you think you are, that a lot of people are having similar experiences. Is it fair to say that on reflection now, Meg, that 
the 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 imp, there's been a positive impact on the let's call them supernormals as this group of people the 75 percent is it is it fair to say that it actually in a way has had a positive impact on their life you know i think most people would say it it's it's mixed and i'm not saying that to be a downer i'm trying to be you know really authentic and i wanted the book to be very authentic that few people would say gosh i'm so glad that you know there was domestic violence in my home or i'm so glad my parent was an alcoholic but most resilient people are able to see ways in which growing up without having everything in their favor made them stronger or more determined, or lead a more purposeful life, or choose a meaningful career. And so I think that's one thing resilient people do, is most people will say, I wouldn't wish it on another person. I don't really wish it on myself. However, I can see how it's helped me in the long run. And that, you know, a lot of people really treasure their adult lives as parents or partners, you know, without violence in the home or without alcoholism in the home, because they know that's not something that they've been able to take for granted. And so three out of four people in any given room, stats would tell us, have been through some adversity in their past. How does does it then frame adversity into the future, Meg? So I'm curious that someone has been through this and they've had that reaction you're talking about, so it's 50-50 with how they see it and they wouldn't wish it on people. However, they've been through it, they've dealt with it. How do they then see adversity? You know, it's interesting. You hear that a lot, comes up a lot with people's own children. It's that same mixed bag sort of feeling where they, they feel like, you know, so many people who grew up with tough times, they're so pleased to give their children a better life than the one they've had, yet they often feel a little mixed about it of that, well, but I'm also aware that some adversity helped me and that they don't necessarily want their children to have, you know, completely, you know, stress-free lives because they do see that having had some adversity did have some upsides for it. It taught them, you know, how to get through hard times because hard times are coming one way or another at some point, you know, during your time on earth. And you've said that um, it's, that sometimes the supernormals actually don't consider themselves to be resilient. Just explain that to me. That was really why I wrote this book the way I did. It was why I called it Supernormal, is that most people who psychologists were say, would say are resilient. So the, the definition of resilience, according to the American Psychological Association, is adapting well after adversity. That's it. You don't have to be a celebrity or a CEO um, or a you know, president or a prime minister to be considered resilient. You just have to adapt well after adversity. But I think for a lot of people, it goes back to that feeling like that they're in this minority that something bad happened to. So they see themselves as damaged or abnormal rather than seeing how they got through it and that to come out on the other side of that, the, for them, the ordinary is extraordinary. And so I'm trying to flip the conversation from that feeling of, hey, I'm abnormal because of the adversity to, well, maybe maybe you're super normal because of the resilience. And that actually is a, converse, is a shift that happens a lot in therapy, but it takes a lot of work that people come in seeing themselves as abnormal because, you know, their parent was an alcoholic or because their brother was abusive or whatever the case may be. When you write a successful book as you have and you are out and about promoting it, 
people are telling you stories and sharing their own stories and with the clinical work you're doing, you're hearing about a lot of stories. With all that stuff you're hearing, Meg, what do you think is the psychology behind hard times? Like how, how do these people, what do they go through in their own mind to deal with this? The metaphor that I use in Supernormal is the superhero. And the reason that I chose that was because what I've heard people say, you know, no matter what the adversity was, most resilient people, they don't say, oh, I bounced back or I rebounded, which is what we say in popular conversation. You know, we say, oh, you're resilient. You really bounced back. No one ever says that who actually did come back from something. They usually say, I fought my way back. I wasn't going to let it defeat me. I had to be brave. I had, I'm a scrapper. I'm a survivor. <laughs> and so the um, the psychology of resilience is usually for most people has a real you know kind of fighting aspect underneath. And I wanted to highlight that in terms of the superheroic metaphor that a lot of people are spending their childhoods you know dodging bullets and leaping over buildings to survive. And that's really what resilience feels like. It doesn't feel like bouncing back like nothing bad ever happened. Can we? Can we take learnings from trauma and suffering? Because, and I guess I'll spin this around, that it seems that we are trying to get our children to avoid those things. In in common culture, we hear parents trying to be helicopter parents and trying to have our children avoid those things and have the perfect life and not face it. Yet, it seems whenever you read a biography, autobiography, hear an interview with somebody, it's never been that way. They've always gone through something from, let's call it hard times, right through to the supernormals, which is trauma or adversity. What, what, what's the learning we take from that, Meg? It, it does come up a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, about, you know, people will say, should I be toughening up my kids? And of course, you know, I'll get all kinds of email if that's what I suggest, because, you know, I don't think you have to, because if you, if you look at the 75% number, it's coming, you know, even if you have a nice home, you can't protect your child maybe from being bullied, or as we've seen in the media lately from being sexually assaulted, that, that hard times are coming no matter what you do. So I actually think we need to prepare our kids, um, you know, in the little ways that we can of just having them, um, you know, how do they handle a bad grade or how do they handle a kid at school who doesn't like them, that those are the moments where they really don't need helicoptering because it's learning that, you know what, you just got to pick yourself up and go back in there or go to school and tell that person to leave you alone. And, you know, how do we deal with those um, smaller situations, prepare us for the big ones? I had a, I was at a conference recently and somebody said, you know, I was answering a question like that. I said, I think maybe parents do protect their kids from some of the hard things in their lives. Like I said, I don't know, maybe chores like raking the leaves. And then somebody said, well, if my kid rakes the leaves, then my yard man loses his job. And so I just kind of thought, well, I don't know how I can help you. Okay. I've given you a suggestion. My kids rake the leaves and I think it's good for them. They get really excited, you know, to like earn some money and to see the piles they've made. And so just the little things, I'm not suggesting people throw giant obstacles in front of their kids, but I don't think helicoptering helps because the slings and arrows will come. We, we know that that's coming. 
What's the audio track that goes through the mind of a supernormal? You, you've, you've spoken to a lot, you've written about it, and I suspect you've had access to a lot of this since the book, with the work you do. What's the general audio track they play that helps get them through this? What I wanted to write about was I wanted people to hear that audio track that, you know, that really is, it's not the five step plan to resilience. It's really like the inner life of resilient people, you know, excuse me, what they're thinking and what they're feeling as they're getting through as kids or as, you know, once they've grown up and people can't imagine what their background is. And so they will say that a lot of times the audio track when they were getting through, when they were younger, it's like I said before, it's that kind of this this uh, survivor audio track of failure's not an option. I've got to find a way. This isn't going to defeat me. That they'll often describe themselves as they were just determined that they weren't going to grow up and have the life as adults that they had as kids. Um, I'll tell you an interesting parable because there are obviously so many individual differences in terms of how people do and don't respond to adversity. But here's a a parable a minister shared with me where uh, the minister, there had two adult brothers in his office and they were both raised by an abusive alcoholic. And one of the brothers was, you know, a heavy drinker and a, a, you know, abuser himself. And the other brother was an abstinent man and a model parent. And so the minister says to the brothers, how do you think you came to be who you are? And they both gave the same answer. They both said, given who my father was, how could I not? And what's interesting about that parable is that it really shows how some people see their situation and go, well, I'm, you know, I'm doomed to repeat what's been shown to me. And some people see their situation and they say, that's not going to happen to me. And that's sort of the audio track that resilient people tend to have of, I'm going to find a way out. I'm not going to repeat this. This isn't going to be my life. And there's just, you know, they usually describe that kind of, you know, scrapper within. Is part of your work to actually hear that audio track, Meg? I mean, just hearing you say that, it's a beautiful parable. Is part of the job when you sit and listen to identify the audio track that is going through someone's head that they then share with you to then be able to diagnose how they see the world? You know, it is. Um, I mean, I think that's what's really amazing about my job and about my perspective because of my job that, um, I mean, I hear, I'm just in a very privileged position in that I I hear people's innermost thoughts and feelings. And so some people write books because they've done done research on thousands of subjects, meaning they, you know, these subjects filled out questionnaires or they saw them in like little lab activities. And that's one kind of data. But I hear, you know, the narrative data, you know, the, the audio track, like you're saying, and that's a very special thing to get to hear. And what you, if you hear them over and over and over again, you start to see the commonalities. And that's usually what makes me feel like this is a book someone needs to write because I hear these people saying the same 
you know, they're all saying the same things, but they're often saying, I feel really alone in this, um, not knowing that the next hour I'll talk to someone else who says the exact same thing. And that's usually where my books come from, is that I see that these are conversations that while they're useful to have in an office, that people need confidential, you know, places where they go and they feel like they can talk, but not everyone's going to go to a therapist. And sometimes these conversations need to come out into the public. Do you know, it's odd though. I heard a, a psychologist say that that we should talk to ourselves and give ourselves advice the same way that we would give our best friend advice. Isn't it odd that people need to go and sit in front of a psychologist or a psychoanalyst or whoever it may be and have them hear the dialogue? Why, why can't we hear our own dialogue? That's one reason I write books is that I actually don't think that people should need to go to see psychologists to hear their own dialogue. Now, some people need it because, you know, they have you know, severe OCD and a trained professional needs to help you, you know, not keep uh, checking and repeating and all that stuff. But in terms of some of the conversations that people have with me, I feel that I've failed in my job if they don't start having them with other people also. That sometimes I like to see myself as a starting point, you know, maybe the initial safe place where someone says something out loud they've never said before or tells a secret they've never told. And they see how that goes and they get a chance to think about what they've said or what they're experiencing and then share it with a friend or a partner. But, you know, I don't want people's last important relationship or only important relationship to be with me. And um, that's one reason I write books is so that people can read what I've written and talk about it or think about it without having to go pay a psychologist for that because not everyone's going to do that or has the the access or the money or you know the inclination we we love a good buddha quote here on the mojo radio show meg it's uh the buddha is is someone who is always on the wall of the studio and you you said uh, during an interview you had a quote from the buddha you said you will be punished not because of your anger but by your anger. Where is anger valuable to us? Yeah, so um, that quote is in the um, the chapter I write called Fight, and it's about that fighting instinct. And there are a lot of quotes out there, including that one, that, that you know, come down pretty hard on anger, that it, just, it being a toxic emotion. Um, it's actually, you know, one of the five, you know, it, emotions that everybody shares and, and it has survival value. And so what they have found is that people who get angry and then use that anger for problem solving, or if we go back to the brothers parable I told a minute ago, who use that anger to go, this is wrong. I'm not going to live like this. I'm not going to let you do this to me. I'm not going to raise my kids that way. That that, that anger can be productive if it um, sends us in a purposeful direction where we make, you know, important or meaningful changes or a difference in the world. Of course, it's not, it's not productive if we just use anger to, to sit around and stew about things. But anger plus productive action is actually what usually drives people forward. And I think we almost need another word for this kind of anger, and we don't have it, I don't think. But, you know, that that sense of, I'm not going to settle for this, I'm not going to accept this, things are going to be different for me or my neighborhood or 
other women or my community, that that's actually what drives change. That's gold. Anger plus productive action. Oh, I like that. Mate. That's good. That's gold. That's, that, that's, that's Buddha <laughs> well, gold right you. there. Buddha gold. That's gold, golden Buddha. More, more golden I Buddha. I should that's have gonna... mentioned... I'm a, in college. I, I, I minored in Eastern religion. As a matter of fact, I didn't know y'all were Buddha devotees oh, over there. Oh no. yeah, Robbo's actually shaped. He's actually shaped his head. He's shaped like a Buddha. He's that committed. Well, I'm actually I'm aiming for a Buddha body shape. I know you've got. <laughs> you're not aiming. You're there, brother. Going to say that. What's What's the I next goal you've got? You You've got that one. <laughs> Tisha looks like a boob tube now. Um, What's interesting about supernormals, so let's just rewind. Supernormals, 75% of us have had some sort of childhood trauma. There are 10 different ones you outline the book. So that's a supernormal. And what you've said is that supernormals tend to put aside their own self-care. How does that work, Mike? What's the psychology behind that? Well, you know, it all comes back to the fight or flight. So if you think about the, are superheroes big in Australia or is this purely a U.S. thing? Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, they're big. I think they're universal. I think they're universal. I think they're everywhere. Well, that's what I'm saying. All right. So that's that's what I was hoping. So if you think about a superhero, right, they have their origin story. Something happens that sets them on this path of survival, you know, maybe going out and doing good in the world. But they never really take a day off. They never come home and, you know, put their foot up on the coffee table and binge watch it, you know cool series on TV. They, you know, love never works out. They never have families. And so there's something similar, I think, for a lot of resilient people who've had to scrap and fight their way out of childhood. And that by the time they get to adulthood and then often make it into my office, they'll say, sure, I got through college or sure, I'm successful or, you know, I've, I've really come a long way. But I can never slow down. I can't relax. No one really knows me. I can't let people get close to me. And the reason for this is, is they don't realize it maybe, and that's why I wrote the book. That's why they're in my office. But they're still living in fight or flight. And so, like, they're, they're still living the life of a superhero where they're just dodging bullets all the time and out there, like, ready to scrap when the scrapping needs to happen. And that's, I mean, that's really survival mode. And it's what psychologists call dealing, not feeling, right? So they're out there, they're dealing. I mean, if you need a pro- something done at work, they're your person. Um, but they may not know yet how to kind of let down and see, like, hey, I'm, I'm you know, in a safe place, I can slow down, I can take a day off, I can take care of myself, I can let other people get close to me. I'm not in danger anymore. There's a quote, and I think, no, I want to say maybe it's a Buddha quote, but someone I think told me it once, so I've got to share it with you. It's not in the book, (laughs) but it's something like, you know, a raft is a great thing to have when you're crossing a river, but when you get to the other side, you should put it down. And yeah, so right. I'm not yeah. sure that's good. Um, and so it's a little bit like that, that, you know, people are in survival mode to get out of and transcend these early adversities. But often the thriving part is what they usually what usually brings them into my office. They'll say, I look successful, but I'm exhausted or no one knows my secrets or, you know, I'm afraid to get married because of what I saw growing up. So that's that's usually the, you know. The last frontier. I don't know exactly how I'm going to bring this question together, so bear with me. So my feeling is that a lot of people are working very hard. 
Some building their identity around their work. Some don't know any other way. Some are using it as a distraction, but they are working very hard, doing long hours until something happens. And typically some sort of adversity, they get diagnosed or they lose a loved one and they suddenly go, what's it all about? Like, what is my life all about? Then on the other side, you've got these super normals who have been through this thing and they're saying, I want a better life. I won't let that happen to me. So they are working hard to get what they see is the life that they want for themselves. I heard you say this quote and it said, you, the question you asked was, what sort of life are you willing to fight for? And I, I wrote that down when I heard it, Megan. I thought it was such a profound question is that I'm wondering whether the supernormals have a better understanding of the life they want and they're willing to fight for as opposed to a lot of people who are just working hard, but they're not really fighting for a quality or a fulfilled life. Did I make any sense with that Uh, question? No, no, I think you're you're right on, actually, that that's one of the, you know, the upsides of adversity, if you will, is that many, many people who've been through something, they go into adulthood determined, you know, to not be this or to definitely do that. Many go into careers that are related. So they feel very purposeful in terms of they become physicians or I have a client who, you know, is a public prosecutor because she was sexually abused when she was younger. And so, you know, a lot of people feel like they live very purposeful, meaningful driven in a good way lives. Um, and they can, you know, sometimes notice their peers are going, gosh, gee, I could do anything, but I can't, but therefore I don't want to, there's nothing in particular I want to do. And so I do think many people find their purpose this way. Howard Schultz is a great example of someone who, he's the, you know, the the chairman of Starbucks and uh huh. And so he grew up um, very, very poor, and his dad lost his job when he was young, and because he had an injury, and you know he just basically got laid off, and that was that. And the family just really scrapped it from there on. And so he was determined if he ever made it in life, he wasn't going to let that happen to the people who worked for him. And so Starbucks, besides being known for their logo and their coffee, they're known for, they have an extremely generous insurance plan, even for part-time workers, and because he wasn't going to let that happen to his workers. So that's an example of someone, he didn't go into social work or say, I need to become you know, a labor organizer, but he said... When I succeed, I'm going to do good for other people. And I do think that's a place where, in the end, adversity helps us. That's a good story, isn't it? It is. He's got a great memoir. He's got a couple, but he wrote a book called Pour Your Heart Into It. Yes, I actually read that book a little while ago uh, before I think he stood down as the as the chairman or the head of the company. It, um, it's a very, very worthy read. Just for the super normals, Meg, because of what they've been through – Do they then find it hard to trust people? Do they find it hard to trust in a relationship or a business situation because of the diversity? Is trust an issue for them? Absolutely. That if you think about the adversities I named earlier in the show, or if you just think about adversity in general that that most that kids grow up with, they people tend to be hurt at the hands of others. So it's you know, it's a parent who's an abuser 
neighbor who's an alcoholic or a sibling who's an abuser or a coach who does something. And so I do think that um, relationship that supernormals learn to trust themselves. You know, I know I can get myself out of this. I know I can rely on myself. Other people, not so much. And so there's that bridge that needs to be crossed, usually in adulthood. And then there's also the the gulf of that often people don't know their history. They don't know their secrets. So there are a lot of barriers between themselves and other people. There's no one really knows me, but there's also the feeling of, well, I'm not sure I really want to know other people because so so far my experiences haven't been great. You know, if my own parents couldn't be good to me, why would this coworker, why would this new boyfriend or girlfriend, why would this stranger? The sad thing is, Meg, uh, I, I listen to you a lot going through stuff you've written. There must be a lot of people who've been through this adversity. They grew up with it in the home, but they thought, well, this is what everybody goes through. I mean, you do read biographies, autobiographies of people who grew up poor or in dysfunctional households. Or they, well, we just thought everyone was the same. That's just how we thought it was. And I suspect there are people listening to this who've never acknowledged it or even knew in which case they don't know the impact it's having on their life. Do you see that? All the time, actually. So it's one reason why I talk about, I mean, the book, Supernormal, the subtitle is The Untold Story of Adversity and Resilience. So I could have just written The Untold Story of Resilience and just skipped right into the part everybody always wants to talk about, which is how do you find your way out? But my experience (laughs) is, is that most people don't know the data or the reality of their own adversities. And so they feel like either what they was happening to them was what was happening to other people, or they feel like what was happening to them was really bizarre and no one would understand. And so I really went through each of the adversities and said, this is how common it is to have a parent who's an alcoholic. And this is what it feels like when you live in that situation or, um, to think about uh, sexual abuse, for example, the chapter in Supernormal happens to be about a young woman who, as a teenager, was sexually abused by her coach. And I just, I've been working on that chapter for two, three years, and the book comes out right at a time where that topic is really exploding in sports right now. But um, she came in thinking, knowing she'd had some strange relationship that never felt right to her that she didn't want to do but didn't know what it was and that she honestly did not know that what had happened was illegal and unethical um, and that it was legally considered to be sexual abuse, that that was – she didn't know that's what it was. But she knew that it had stopped her life for the last 10 years. Meg, with your work, you you seem to – what I really admire is you you have a genuine – care, a genuine, let's call it empathy with the people who've been through this. And I call them supernormals, not as a label, but just as a, as a term we can use based on the book and your learnings. How much, you, how much of you personally is in this book? Like how much, how much can we see of Meg in this book? Well, someone asked me the other day, I was on the radio and they said, where does all this empathy come from? They were going for the same thing you're going for. But, you know, honestly, the book comes from – you cannot listen to story after story. I mean, I've got 16 or 17 in the book, but of each of those, I've heard 
you know, 10 just like them in every chapter. You can't listen to all those stories and sit with all those people and not have the empathy be there. But, you know, if 75% of people have been through something, most likely I have too. Um, you know, I've learned over the years that my, it's kind of like being a reporter is that it's usually best if I'm not the story. But, you know, I think the empathy is a combination of my own life, but also really more than that, just hearing what people are saying and being moved by how alone so many people feel with it and feeling like I could do something about that by, by writing it down and putting it out there for everyone to read. This may seem like an odd question, uh, Meg. You Earlier we talked about the Buddha and we talked about anger and you just mentioned sitting in front of a lot of your clients and hearing these stories. Do you sometimes find yourself getting angry on behalf of the person sitting in front of you, like to try and move them beyond? Do you you find that? Yeah, absolutely. I actually would say that one of, that's one reason I write the books is that I'm probably in a way not quite patient enough to be just a a clinical psychologist because I feel like this is wrong that, that people are sitting here alone with this. This is wrong that they're coming to my office, but these conversations aren't happening outside of my office. Or this is wrong that there are so many people who could never afford to come see a person like myself. And what what are they doing? What information are they getting? How alone do they feel? So it actually is, I'm a very <laughs> impatient person, actually. Um, and I do think a little bit of that. I have that, you know, I'm not going to stand for this is a, is a bit where my books come from, is that I'm not really... Uh, satisfied with people just coming in and talking to me and be sending them on their way. I wanted to interview on the show because I'm sure there are people who are listening to us who are in that 75%. And I wanted them to get, get the experience of hearing you talk about this and encourage them to get the book to help them understand, deal with. Then the other 25% who maybe are fortunate enough to be in that 25% to know how it works and if it does happen, how to deal with it. What's the psychological philosophy that you've taken from your work that you would share with someone if things are about to go wrong? I mean, again, I think it it almost always starts from, you know, a place of being a fighter, of saying, you know, I need to look at this situation and find my way out. And yet... When I get out, then I need to be able to sort of not just, like I said, not just survive, but also thrive. So, I mean, I think most people start from a position of saying, I'm not going to let this defeat me. There's actually a cool study. It was uh, East German political prisoners, and they were, you know, held in solitary confinement and all kinds of miserable conditions. And some of them, years later, still had PTSD as others didn't. And they looked at how they were treated and how they coped. And one thing they found that was more predictive of how they, how well they did after wasn't how they were treated, but how they thought to themselves inside. And so the people who inside while they were in the jail or in solitary confinement said, this isn't going to ruin me. This isn't going to be the end of me. This isn't going to define me. That those were the people who were doing 
all right, 10, 20 years later, whereas, you know, people who weren't able to find that uh, tended to struggle more. Are you a journaler? I am not, actually. <laughs> I probably should say I am because I think it's good for people, but uh, <laughs> yeah. no, I'm not. Maybe it's because I'm a writer. I, I uh, you know, most of my writing, I love to write, but I love to write books. So what's your process for writing then, Meg? I'm just, just to finish up because I'm very respectful for your time, but what is your process for writing if you're not a you're not a pencil and paper journaler what's if you have a daily routine or ritual around your writing is it only when it comes like how do you how do you approach your writing oh i i approach it like a job i mean and i and you know and i mean that in the most exciting way possible i approach it like a superhero's job so i mean i sit down every day with my latte and my laptop and you know i try to put in, you know, four to five hours straight of writing. And it, it is absolutely not like when it moves me or when I find the time or it would never happen. There's so many things that I, you know, like when I think about a book, I get started thinking of this is something more people need to be talking about. This can't just stay in my office. I get all fired up about it. And then it starts to come together in my head. And then I kind of organize how it's going to go. And then I sit down every single day and I bust my tail on it. Do you do four to five hours back to back? Do you follow like the Pomodoro method of doing 40 minutes, then taking a break, do 40 minutes, take a break? Do you do, like, how do you, because we, and the reason I'm fascinated by this is that we have had a number of people over the years, we're in our fifth season, so performance, productivity, different routines and rituals they use. Uh, we had Kel Newport on who wrote Deep Work, talking about how do you do deep work as opposed to shallow work. Hmm. What's oh, that's your actual process? Because your stuff is very empathetic and you do care and you do write to truly help people. Four to five hours is a long haul. How do you how do, do you break it down? Is it just smash it out? Um you know, I think because the, the writing, and this is especially true of this book, Supernormal, I mean, I appreciate you saying it, it comes across as very empathic because I really, really wrote it out of compassion and I really wanted to write the people's stories as they felt them, you know, not just some like surface anecdote of you know, so-and-so said this to so-and-so, like I wanted the reader to feel it. So I was feeling it as I was writing it. It actually took a lot out of me to write all those stories because a lot of them are really heartbreaking in a lot of points. So I, I actually tend to write, I mean, you know, I'm sure many experts would suggest I take a different method, but I actually tend to write four or five straight hours um, because I just go in this tunnel where I am sort of channeling my client. I'm trying to get into their head and tell their story as they told it to me. And that's not something that I can pop in and out of in 45-minute chunks. What's the biggest reward of writing a book? I mean, there's obviously financial rewards and there's obviously the reward of having it published, but is there there's something else more personal that that, that sort of jumps out as you as a great reward from spending all those hours behind the computer? Oh, definitely. And for me, you know, if I was in it for the money, I wouldn't have a, I wouldn't be a clinical psychologist. I would 
you know, yeah, be right. a hedge fund manager, <laughs> right? So, um, I mean, the, the money's great, you know, if it works out, but I'll tell you, absolutely, for me, it's hearing, I was at an event last night, I did a talk and had a book signing. It's those people who come up and say, I thought you were talking to me. I thought you were writing about me. Like, this is, this is me. And I didn't, I thought I was the only one. That's what I'm doing it for. I mean, if the money comes, great. But that's really what, that's what does it for me. So say you had another life and you weren't doing clinical work and you weren't an author. If you had another life, what would you do in that life? Honestly, I would, um, I would, I mean, this is only half answer your question, then I would be an author. um, If I had it to do all over again, I guess I would say I would just have started writing sooner because I love it. Um, But there, you know, I don't, I don't, there's honestly not, like if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would keep writing. So I can't think of something else that I would, you know, really wish that I had done. Just one final question for you, Meg. What's something that you don't have figured out yet? Uh, Oh, I'll tell you something I would never... I mean, I probably don't have it figured out, but even if I did, I wouldn't say it is, is I have two young children and I feel that it, that's one thing I'll never write about is parenting <laughs> or my children because I don't want to jinx myself. You know, I don't want to put myself out there as I've totally got this because I feel that somehow I'm jinxing it. Um, and, you know, raising children is so terrifying and it's so private for them that you know I don't think they're my material you know necessarily so but it's really more of I would never pretend to have I mean I might have opinions about parenthood like I said earlier my kids rake the leaves and I think that's probably for I don't think I'm jinxing anything by saying that but um, I think parenting is something that it I I'm not sure that I feel that I could say I've got it all figured out. It's just, it just feels too precious and, and um, too big. If, if there was a, I'm sure people are curious about people like yourself, Meg, that write, you are doing, let's just say, research, helping people clinically. I mean, if, if there was a song that you would play that said, you know what, if you hear this song, that's a song that represents me as a person, as Meg. What song comes oh to my. mind for you to go, yeah, play that and that'll give you an insight into what I'm all about? Oh, that is such a good question. I wish you'd emailed <laughs> it to me because I really would love to give you, like, that's a great question because you probably noticed in uh, Supernormal, the lead of, you know, most chapters or a lot yeah. are song lyrics because clients often say to me, if you want to understand me, you got to go listen to this song. Um so right now I've got all these other people's songs in my head and I'm trying to think, what would it be? What would, what? But, but I too, over the years, I've had, you know, that song. Um, and I'm sorry, I just can't think of what, what the one would be right now. But I'm with you on that as a mm. concept because I think a lot of times it, it, at times in people's lives, maybe there's not one song that's them forever, but there was like an era where that was the song that was like my soundtrack. But I will tell you, I will say if I were stranded on a deserted island with only one album I could take with me, it would probably be 
Pink Floyd's The Wall. Is that oh. right? Yes. Yeah, I'm with you. Yes. I mean, that's, you know, it's. I think that's one of the most complicated, psychologically interesting and super normal um, albums ever written. The only thing else you would need is a pair of headphones with that. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's much better in headphones Just than it is with speakers. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Meg, this has been a wonderful chat. Uh, I know how much you have on and how well all the books and the work you're doing is going. So we really respect your time. I could talk to you for hours about that. There's stuff I'm even thinking of now I'd like to I dig know, into. same thing. It's, yes. um, you're a fascinating, fascinating author. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, love to do it again down the track sometime. Thank you. Uh, are you writing more stuff now? Are you currently writing? Um, I mean, Supernormal just came out in November. So, but I've already, I'm already, you know, getting all fired up on the inside and secret about my next book. So stay tuned. <laughs> well, you can share your secret here because no one listens to us anyway. So, you know, go ahead. <laughs> uh, and uh, should we be in Charlottesville, Virginia? Is that right? Yes, We that's shall uh, meet up for a Dos Equis, mm-hmm. or if you're in uh, in Australia, then uh, come on down, we'll buy you a beer here. That would be great. I've really enjoyed it. Help us get the Mojo Radio Show on the iTunes What's Hot list. Hit up the Mojo Radio Show and leave a comment now. Oh, and please... You are such a disappointing pair. Be gentle with us. I think resilience and grit is becoming more than just a bit of a thread through this show. It's becoming a, a, a rock-solid guarantee that somewhere in the show we're going to get onto the subject these days. Well, it is, but it's so important in society today. And I think Meg has a different view that we think resilience and grit comes from, in a lot of cases, bad things. But Meg's take is that it can be quite positive. There's a lot to take from it. And in fact, to have a fulfilled life, which is a Michael Gervais, a previous guest of ours, a Michael Gervais take is that you want to experience all the emotions in your life, every part of it to give you a fulfilled life. So I like Meg's stuff. I think it's super interesting, super normal, and um, that was a great treat having her on the show. Yeah, good fun. You know something that takes a lot of grit for me? Mm-hmm. Getting up at five o'clock every morning. Why? It's a question we ask a lot on the show of our guests is, do you have a morning ritual? And I've been thinking about mine, and I've never really had one. Uh, and I was doing a bit of research and came across the morning rituals of some really well-known people. It was really interesting. Did you know, for a fact, that Richard Branson gets up at five, does some types of exercise, but then he has breakfast with his family every morning that it's possible because he says it puts him in the right frame of mind? Mm. Or yeah. Bill Gates does an hour on his treadmill while watching educational videos. Steve Jobs, get this one, I thought this was a great one. Steve Jobs used to look in the mirror and say to himself every morning, if this was the last day of my life, would I be happy with what I'm about to do today? And one more that I thought was really clever, um, Sarah Blakely now, Sarah founded Spanx Underwear. She lives five minutes from work, but realised that she does her best thinking in the car. So she leaves for work an hour before she has to get there just so she can drive around and do her thinking for the day. Which started me thinking... We, we talk about these morning rituals on the show all the time, but I'm interested to hear from you, someone who deals with this stuff every day. Firstly, why are they important? And secondly, what's your morning routine? Uh, well, they're important because the first 15 minutes of your day sets up your day. So not long ago, I interviewed Craig Ballantyne from Early to Rise, and he he's probably the guy who started this whole, I don't know, 
psychology behind morning rituals and morning routines. I mean, this is not new. I mean, this dates back to, you can find a book called The Daily Rituals and it'll take you back to stuff that Abraham Lincoln and Churchill and Picasso and you name it. Whether they be good or bad, people have rituals. They're not just morning rituals. You can also have evening rituals. And we've had people like Arna Devane of the Sleep Muse who will talk about evening rituals where you have a wind down. And most guests we've spoken to have them. Why Why do you have them? Because the first 15 minutes sets up your day. A chaotic, busy, out of control, unproductive first 15 minutes of your day, you can guarantee that the rest of your day is going to proceed in the same manner. So regardless of what it is, whether it's meditation, whether it's reading, a lot, of, a lot of people have exercise, regardless of what time you get up, the important thing is you work out if you're going to start the day in the right manner. And by getting up before dawn, before the world starts to move, you've got the silence and stillness that Ben Kingsley talked about, the famous actor who won Academy Award for Gandhi. He said, stillness and silence are my currency. And by getting up early, you beat the day you can get sorted. And then if you work out what the most important things are in your world, whether that be meditating, whether it be exercising, whether it be eating, whether it be playing with your dog, whether it be sitting in silence watching a sunrise, regardless of what it is, if you get it done early and you get up early to do that, you'll find by seven o'clock, you'll already be in the zone. You'll already be in the place. You've knocked out a whole bunch of stuff. The danger is that people just extend their day by two hours. Get up at five o'clock, check emails and get on social. Now that could be fine as long as somewhere in your day you have that time which is you to recharge, rejuvenate, freshen your mind. See, everybody in business is about creative outputs. If you're in business, then you are there to solve problems for somebody else. And if you can't solve problems for somebody else better than the next person, then why the hell do I need you? So you need creative inputs in order to have creative outputs. So regardless of what your morning looks like, at some point during the day, you need to have a ritual where you stop down, have creative inputs, do the non-negotiables, exercise, stretching, meditation, CrossFit, reading, podcast, a video, regardless of what it is. And then at nighttime, you build a ritual where you disconnect from the world and you get your brain into a place where it's ready for rest. And if you're a parent, you get the house ready for rest. So you can do it, you know, early in the day. You can do it during the day. You can do it at nighttime. Many people do it early to get it out of the way and start and set up the day. So it's not new thinking. There's a lot of stuff written on rituals, call it routines, call it morning preparation. But um, yeah, it's a good thing. I'm interested in something you said there, though. You said that if the first 15 minutes of your day are chaotic, the rest of your day is chaotic. Why is that? Why can we not recover from that? Because you don't start with any patterns. You don't start with any settlements. You don't start with the clarity of thought. Mm. Most people rip into the day and they roll over and they start in a social feed. And they lose themselves in their social feed and they're yeah, catching right. up for the rest of the day. Most people haven't, don't. See, the day doesn't start in the morning. Mm. You can get up at five o'clock. The day should have started the night before because the night before is when you set up in your mind what you will do when you wake up. And suddenly you start as Colin Wright from the movie The Minimalists on Netflix, as he said on our show, you start to live a life of intention. Most people live subconsciously out of control where they let the day direct them. They don't start the day with any intention. But when you start with a morning ritual or routine, you start with intention. I roll out of bed. Here's what I do. I do my morning gratitude journal. I then stretch for five minutes. I play with the dog for 10 minutes. I have a cup of coffee. 
I then meditate. I then journal. Whatever it may be, it's your own. Everyone just, it's, it's your own routine. Mm. But you start that first 15 minutes by having a morning ritual. You start with intention and suddenly you're doing all the things that are important to you. But if it was your last day on the planet, as Steve said, and I call him Steve because he used to be a big fan of the show, mm. but as, as Steve Jobs would have done looking in the mirror, you go, well, if this was the last day on earth, what would be a non-negotiables? Get them done early before anybody can interrupt you. Mm. See, most people don't have the discipline. Most people don't have the discipline to not take a call, to not look at a phone. The phone rings, they have to take the call. Post comes through, they have to check it. Someone says, I know you're busy, but I have to take it. Well, get it done before the sun comes up, before anybody stirs, and you have no disruptions. And we talk about deep work, we talk about focus. Morning rituals or late, late night rituals, like Tim Ferriss will start work at 11 o'clock when everyone's gone to sleep. But it's just another easy way for us to be disciplined. Design beats discipline. Yeah, right. All right. Well, all right. Five o'clock tomorrow morning, the alarm goes off. The Mojo Radio Show. So just before we go on, a quick thank you for uh, Life Coaching Lady who left us a lovely uh, review on iTunes. And it read, I love listening to these podcasts while training. I find them so motivating and inspiring. I never fail to get moments of gold from them. Thanks. That's all we need. Just five stars, one line. Keeps our mojo working. We don't have any sponsors or advertising. Sadly, hello to our friends at Dos Equis. Uh, But we do get free beer from time to time, which is good. But uh, So thank you to Life Coaching Lady. Anybody else who wants to help us out, it helps. It does help the show by leaving a review, but number two, it makes us feel good. So Got a rock. Thank you for this chance to kick ass. We are your humble servants. Please give us the power to blow people's minds with our high-voltage rock. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Now let's get out there and melt some faces! The Mojo Radio Show's Lessons in Rock. So, here's one of our favourite artists. This is a lesson of rock, stroke, gone but not forgotten. Ooh, mixing them up. He said... I think it's terribly dangerous for an artist to fulfil other people's expectations. They generally produce their worst work when they do that. David Bowie. Oh, I was going to say Coldplay. Yet one of the biggest regrets of the dying, according to Bronnie Ware, who will be a guest on the show uh, in the coming months, and Bronnie wrote one of my favourite books called The Five Regrets of the Dying. Bronnie said the number one regret that people say in their deathbed when they're about to leave the planet is, I never led a life of my own dreams, my own expectations. I tried to please everyone else. Mostly because of, I guess, fear of failure, wanting to impress people, wanting to be accepted, wanting to be acknowledged. Yet my question is, do we ever really get to push ourselves to new territories or do we ever get to have a crack at what we're capable of? And if you did have a chance to have a crack at something that was all about you selfishly in terms of creativity and innovation and creation, what would you do? What what would be the the road less travelled that you would take? And is there something you want to write, produce, do, that if you don't do it now, if you did get a phone call and it was all over for you in the coming months or years, if you didn't do it, what would you regret? And I'll just go back to that quote again. I thought it was a cracker that I saw from David Bowie. 
I think it's terribly dangerous for an artist to fulfill other people's expectations. They generally produce their worst work when they do that. And something I saw recently, which butts onto this, is there are new stats coming out on Spotify. So an artist can go in and see their demographic, who's listening, what sort of music, whether people tried a song, how long they stayed, like all the really deep stats that Spotify are saying that artists are asking for. But my question is, would a true artist care? Because when you hear a true artist, they're writing for themselves. They're looking to express themselves, their own emotions, tell a story. They're not trying to please people. I reckon it's a really dangerous place for artists to get into and podcasters. (laughs) All right, so that's my rave. That's my tribute to Bowie. That's my lesson of rock. Uh, I'm going to let you choose the play out song, which I know is going to be dangerous. Let's go. (laughs) We want something that's going to rock. So let's go either Diamond Dogs, Mm. Gene Genie, Mm. or Suffragette City. Your your choice. Uh, Don't lean on me, man, because you ain't got time to check it. What song am I talking about? Suffragette City, we're out.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.